Well, if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where we'll be. But before we, I begin, before we start, let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord. Our God and Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is Yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and You are exalted as head above all. In Your hand are power and might, and in Your hand it is to make great and to give strength And so now we thank You, our God, and we praise Your glorious name. As we look into these things, Lord, draw us in. Draw us further up and further into You, into this uncomfortable but so pleasurable life that You call us to as men who follow You. We love You, Lord. Help us by the end of this day love You more fiercely. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin our day this morning with George Whitfield. George Whitfield. Whitfield gave his life to the work of preaching, to preaching the scriptures on both sides of the Atlantic. He gave his life for it, and he died doing it. Uh, His biographer, is named Arnold Dalimore. And as he was writing this story and going over Whitfield's life uh, again and again and again in preparation for this book, he himself would pause and he wrote a brief commentary on Whitfield's life and he said these words. These words that I, I hope set a tone for our entire gathering today. This is what he said. Yes, that we would see the great head of the church once more raise up unto himself certain young men whom he may use in his glorious employ. And what manner of men will they be? Men mighty in the Scriptures. Their lives dominated by a sense of the greatness, the majesty, the holiness of God. Their minds and hearts aglow with the great truths of the doctrines of grace. These men will be men who have learned what it is to die to self. We just sang it, right? To human aims and personal ambitions. Men who are willing to be fools for Christ's sake. Who will bear reproach and falsehood. Who will labor and suffer. Whose supreme desire will be not to gain earth's accolades, but to win the Master's approbation when they appear before His great and awesome judgment seat. They will be men... Remember, he's talking about Whitfield. They'll be men who will preach with broken hearts and tear-filled eyes upon whose ministries God will grant an extraordinary effusion of the Holy Spirit and who will witness signs and wonders following in the transformation of multitudes of human lives. What a tone. What a tone to set. What a way to begin. Not only this biography, but our day together. Sure, Dalimore was speaking of preachers. 
and longing for a new generation to be raised up. But is this not what we're called to be as men in general? It is. Indeed, it is. So let's just go ahead and answer the question, what are God's men in the church supposed to be? God's men in the church are called by God to be men who are mighty in the Scriptures, aglow with the great truths of the Scriptures, dead to self, alive to God, and all that that means, dominated by a sense of God's greatness and majesty and splendor and holiness and power. This is what we are called to be. So, to see these things, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Verse 1 to 11. And I'd only like to call your attention to two things in this section knowing the gospel first and living the gospel second. Knowing the gospel, living the gospel. Let's read the text. Verse 1, chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. How fitting are just those words. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the Gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the Word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach And so you believed. Knowing the Gospel, living the Gospel. First, knowing the Gospel. And this is from verse 1 to 7. So here at the end of a long letter, Paul begins chapter 15 of the famous letter to 1 Corinthians that we learn in chapter 5 could perhaps be the second letter, realistically, that we don't have the first, but here as he begins this famous chapter in which we find the famous defense for the resurrection, he begins it with a reminder. A reminder of the gospel that he preached to them. He says they not only received it at first in the past, but that they they continue to stand in it in the present moment, and they are being saved by it. So for these Corinthians, and really for all Christians all over the world, believing the Gospel is truly part of our past. It is something that we at one time did. Whether we heard it from our parents, whether we heard it from a pastor, a book, or however we heard it, we heard the Gospel. We felt convinced 
of its truthfulness. We saw the sinfulness of our sin and we ran to the Savior by faith, grabbing hold of Him and found that He had already grabbed hold of us. This is a past memory for all Christians, but notice how Paul's speaking here. He's speaking as if this Gospel is not just something involved in our past, but something that deals immensely in the present and also will deal immensely in the future. Our past is settled because of the Gospel. Our present is secure. And because of the Gospel, our future is certain. This is what he's reminding them of. And you think, why the reminder? After 15 chapters, don't you think they would have gotten it by now? We are leaky people. And what often goes in one ear may not even make it to the other ear before it comes out another hole in our head. And so we need to be reminded. But note how verse 2 ends. If. If. After all the glory of receiving and standing in and continuing to be saved by the Gospel, he says, if you continue to hold fast to the Word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. There's a warning for us here. I think a hefty warning that calls us to examine how we first believed in Christ and how we must continue on in Him. And I think we're reminded that we will only stand in presently and one day be finally saved by this Gospel if we believed rightly in the beginning. I think Paul means that if we stop holding fast to the Gospel presently, it's evidence that we at first believed in vain. And therefore, when we believe in vain, we don't continue steadfastly. We continue in vain and will end in vain unless we do a U-turn and start anew. Perhaps uh, an illustration will help. And since my father-in-law, Walter, is here, this is a funny story about the two of us. Uh, A few Christmases ago, we got my two boys, uh, my wife and I's two boys, Jack and Luke, seven and almost four, a trampoline that they could get out some energy on and bounce uh, during the day so when it comes time to bedtime, they sleep. And they're not keeping us awake. Well, anywho, we, we got this, and of course, it comes in a big box. <laughs> Assembly required. And so Walter and I had the joy of assembling this, and it was fun doing it while we were doing it. And then we got to the last step, we were excited that it looked like it started, well, it looked like the picture on the box, kind of, until we did this last step. We got to do the last step, and we couldn't do it. And that was a moment where we both kind of looked at each other, exasperated, exhausted, because we knew what we then had to do, right? We had to go back through each, every individual step to see which one we did wrong. And lo and behold, you know which one we did wrong? The very first one. And so, after then doing the first step again and working through the whole thing once again, we got to the last step again and found it possible to complete. The boys came out and jumped to their hearts, sweaty, content. 
uh, in a much greater but similar way if we find in the present that we are not alive to everything that God has for us in Christ, we're not walking with Him, then perhaps we have done step one wrongly. And the quickest way to right this wrong is to return again and to start over. This is what he's telling them at the end of his letter. Well, he's eager to remind them of the gospel. But notice, I don't know how it is for, for you. Perhaps we can talk about this as the day goes on in our, in our groups and coffee and over the football table. Uh, but there's a lot of gospel talk over in our part of the States. A lot of gospel talk. But there's not much talk defining what this gospel is. So it's just kind of vague, spiritual, Christian talk that a lot of people hide underneath. Paul is not content to do this, is he? He is now going to, in verse 3-7, to define this gospel because he knows we need to know it. We need to know this gospel. So let me read verse 3-7 to again so they wash over us afresh. Here, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James then to all the apostles. So Paul is eager to remind them of this gospel that he did not invent, that he did not create on his own, but the gospel that he received from God, he's giving to them. And more so, the gospel that he's explaining is not just important, should not just be prominent in our life. It ought to carry first importance, meaning it reigns supreme over everything that goes on in our life. There's nothing more important than this gospel that he's about to explain. But what gospel? Beginning in verse 3, Paul goes through a series of gospel propositions. Number one, proposition one, Christ died for sins. That Christ died for sins, explicitly, Paul says, carries implicit meaning that lingers beneath the surface that we must know is held within this phrase. Firstly, for Christ to die for sins implies that the eternal Christ, the eternal Son of God, once became man that men could become sons of God. That in His person, He was the bridge between the gap between God and man. And so truly and fully God, He became truly and fully man in the incarnation, walking and living and talking among us. Second, for Christ to die for sins implies that man is in a desperate sinful condition and cannot get himself out of this condition on his own. This is a point 
that many people on our side of the pond leave out because it's so offensive to us. You mean we can't do this ourselves? I can't tighten the bootstraps tight enough and work hard enough to right all the wrong I feel in me? No. And if the bad news is left out, we have no true understanding of the good news. Because all we hear is how to be saved without understanding why we need to be saved. And so it's important that we know the bad news that we're sinners if we're under if we're going to understand the good news, how to be saved from sin. Thirdly, for Christ to die for sins implies that Christ died for sin. This is not poetic language here. The genre of 1 Corinthians is letter. It's epistle. It's not poetry. This is not symbolic or metaphorical meaning here. This is what it is. He died for sin. Which means that in His body, in our place, as our substitute on the cross, Jesus absorbed the very wrath of God that we deserve. He was the unblemished, innocent Lamb of God that drank the full cup of the Father's fury for sinners. So that we can drink the cup of eternal life forever. That's proposition one. Christ died for sins. Proposition two. Christ was buried. The culmination of the shame and the humiliation of Jesus' life was not the cross. Many people think it is. Especially around Good Friday. There's a lot of feelings uh, rightly so, but they say this is the apex of his suffering and shame and humiliation. Well, there was one further step yes. that the Lord of life entered a tomb and lay dead with no air in his lungs. He condescended not just to become one of us, but to die for us. And this shows us the ultimate end that sin will take us to if we continue in it. The wages of sin is death. And by taking them onto Himself for us, Jesus received those wages. That we could receive the gift. He expired that we could be born anew. He embraced the chill of death that we could feel the warmth of new life. Proposition 3. Christ was raised. Wonder of wonders, when He died... He didn't stay dead. He didn't stay dead. He rose. The resurrection was therefore the divine stamp of validation and approval that God the Father had accepted the sacrifice of God the Son and would now for the rest of the ages apply this redemption by the Spirit to His people. This moment sets Jesus apart from everyone else. I mean, just think throughout the ages, where are all the other religious leaders of the world? Where is Buddha? Where is Confucius? Where is Gandhi? Where is John Smith? Where is Muhammad? They're in the grave. Where is Jesus? Ruling 
and reigning at the right hand of God, waiting to return to usher in His kingdom that's now here in part in full. As they did of His death, we find here, so too the Old Testament Scriptures tell us that Jesus would rise. And so this should not be surprising to them. Because they know the Old Testament Scriptures. They know this happened in fulfillment of all that was told. Proposition 4. And lastly, Christ appeared to many. After rising from death, Paul says Jesus made many public appearances to all the leaders of the early church and to a group of 500 people who Paul says at the time of writing this, oh by the way, they're still alive and haven't died yet. You know what that's called? Verifiable data. You can go talk to them and hear the same story. Yes, I saw him. So he came, he lived, he died publicly and publicly rose. These are Paul's gospel propositions that he employs to teach the Corinthians and to teach us and the church for all time what the gospel is. These are things that we as men of the church must know. We must know it. These things must fill our minds and as we mature and grow and seek to do life together in our churches, these are the things that must fill out the sum and substance of our fellowship and our life together and our life separate. But they're not just things to know mentally as if just bare facts. Okay, I agree. That's true. It's things to know so deeply that we're willing to give our life for these things regardless, or we're willing to stand for these things regardless the cost. And that's so much of our heritage, isn't it? And so we're reminded that the Gospel doesn't call us into comfort. It calls us into an awkward and essential challenge of doing life together because no one of us came into this room baggage free we all have our own sin we bring in and when we relate to one another we bring all that too and when it comes out do we throw in the towel and leave or do we stick it out and actually do life together because jesus did life for us and so we must know these things But as we transition into verse 8, Paul transitions. And he says to them, in effect, we must not only know these things, these things must change how we live. And so it's interesting. Knowledge changes. Head knowledge, heart knowledge changes the feet. It changes the hands. It changes language. It changes behavior. It changes habits. It reorients and challenges and conforms the life into something that we never thought was possible before. This is where Paul begins to go. So we've seen knowing the Gospel in verse 1-7. to Here's living the Gospel, verse 8-11. to And commenting on this passage, uh, Pastor Stephen Um said this about this. Paul speaks here about the Gospel as something he's experienced. 
something that ought to be having an effect on the Corinthian believers. It's not merely an idea or an institutional religion. It's not even a way of looking at the world. It's historical news with ultimate personal impact. That's very fitting. So let's ask the obvious question. right? How does this historical news have personal impact? What did that do for Paul? This news, how did it impact Paul? How did this news, how is Paul using it to impact the Corinthians? And how does this historical news change how you and I do life every day? Well, it's interesting where Paul goes. He goes to two places. He goes to self-deprecation, and then he goes to hard work. That's how we do life. So let's look at these things. He wants this gospel to change us. So from knowing it, we ought to live it. And notice that Paul knew himself. He knew the gospel he just explained and expounded. He didn't deserve. He didn't deserve it. The grace that was shown to him was not earned by him. He knew himself so well, in fact, that he said, every good thing in my life is only due to God's grace. Look at verse 8. He says, I am one untimely born. Verse 9, he calls himself the least of all the apostles. Why? Because he persecuted the church of God. Perhaps we remember the end of Acts chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8 that it's Saul of Tarsus who's holding the coats of those who are throwing stones at Stephen, one of the first deacons. This all leads to verse 10 that I'm sure throws modern pop psychology into all sorts of mess. Look at what Paul says here. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Untimely born, least of all the apostles, I am what I am by the grace of God. Modern pop psychology would tell us this is unhealthy. Paul clearly has issues with self-esteem that he needs to write in order to become a productive person in society. Well, Paul would disagree. And I would encourage you to disagree as well. We cannot ever say that we are what we are because of who we are. We can only say we are what we are because of God. His work, His grace in us is the only reason that we can stand and sing, that we can stand and do anything in this life. And so we have to remember that this gospel that Paul's just expounded in detail is not a call to personal improvement. It's a call to die to self to take up our cross and follow. It is not a call into comfort. It's a call out of comfort into where we find everything, ironically, that we've ever wanted. Even though it's the most dangerous place perhaps to be physically. Now, I'm not sure about uh, you here in Belfast and in Northern Ireland a little bit but I know America. Uh, I'm sure some of the same problems are present with, with men. For us, 
Men are not naturally humble. I'm sure the same is true for you. We do not naturally think of ourselves as less than other people. Over there, men naturally think of themselves as what we would call the bee's knees. Or they're full of swagger or machismo or bravado. That there is no one like them. And that everybody exists to make much of them. That they are the epicenter of their own meta-narrative. That they are in the process of writing. They are the captain of their own ship. The master of their own fate. For American men, North American men at least, because of these things, showing weakness is something you don't do. It's not manly. It's not full of bravado to show that we're actually needy and dependent men, that we actually do have weaknesses. So we must at all times, we're taught, hold it together. And regardless of the storm underneath, we must show ourselves visibly to look like we're fine. Fake it till you make it. And it's rampant in the church. Rampant in the church. And so we need to be reminded again that the church doesn't need men who are full of swagger. The church needs men who have been unswaggered by God's strong and sovereign grace that have taken a self-centered man that uses other people for their own benefit to all of a sudden that man being wrecked by grace becomes a servant to all others around them. That's the life we're called to in the church where we treat other people as more important than ourselves, their interests above our interests, their needs above our needs. And who's going to do it? We can never say, that's not my job description. We're the ones to do it. And as men, the pattern in the garden continues. Eve ate the fruit. True. Where was Adam? Not leading. And ever since, we as men have followed the same melody. And when we ought to be leading, like God wants us to, we're passive in the background with really no idea what's going on. This is not what we're supposed to be. We're to be leading in the church the life that all the church is called to. And so I want to please plead with you to embrace and to begin cultivating what Paul is clearly putting on display for us, a divine self-deprecation that the rest of the world will think you're nuts for trying to do and for trying to think that you now, because of grace, are a servant to all men. Notice then where Paul goes after self-deprecation in verse 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. On the contrary, I worked harder than anyone. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So for Paul, living the gospel that he knows, 
What does it look like day in and day out? Hard work. Not to earn the favor of God, but work from the favor of God already given in Christ. This is Paul's life. It looks like hard work for the gospel. And so we must understand that if we truly get God's grace, that we are who we are, not because of us, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us, if we truly get grace, it will not make us lazy. It will make us very diligent to wear out for the gospel. Paul said at the end of his life, he had been poured out like a drink offering. And ironically, many men by us, and I'm sure men here, they're not living for the glory of God so they can say one day, I have finished the race. I've fought the good fight. I have been poured out. Rather, we live to end very comfortably. Paul's trajectory was not like this. And ours must not also be like that also. So naturally the question comes, are we working hard in the church for the kingdom? We'll, we'll hear about what this looks like in our families and in our vocations. But in the church, are we being poured out like a drink offering for the sake of our brothers and sisters? Or are we using our brothers and sisters for our own benefit? Or are we just distant and aloof and really couldn't care less? If we get grace, we will get to work. Gospel work. And so, I, I get it. We're all busy. So you're thinking, how the heck am I going to add to my already busy schedule? Perhaps we're busy with the wrong things. Perhaps we're busy with worldly acclaim or worldly achievements or worldly pursuits when we need to be busy in kingdom living. And so we must rest in gospel grace. But ironically, resting in gospel grace doesn't look like lounging in a recliner all day. It looks like hard work for the glory of God, among the people of God, for the honor and fame of God, among all the elect of every nations of God. And so, in this light, this God-given, grace-fueled, gospel-fed hard work, we don't need to worry about the language of burnout. We burn out when we are pulling from the wrong resources. It is impossible to burn out when we're pulling from Christ because He's always full and sufficient. And if we know that we're not, that's a good place to be. It's a good place to be. So, brothers... We as men in the church must be those who lead in these two grand things. Knowing the Gospel and living the Gospel. We must be those who love the deep doctrines of God and those who love the God standing forth in those doctrines. Loving His truth and Him, the God of truth, so much 
that we're willing to give our lives for the community of truth, which is His church. This is His church. We're not to be... uh, I believe it was Thomas Watson uh, in the 17th century who said, in his own day, in the Puritan day, too many of us are feathery Christians, blown here and there by every wind of doctrine. And then he wrote the book, A Body of Divinity, to give weight to Christian experience in his own day. Weight that doesn't look like being tossed to and fro, but weight that looks like keeping afloat in the fallen waters of this present world because we have a sturdy mast within our boat. The God of Scripture. I think really, to just put this in a sentence, too many people in the church, uh, on our side, on your side, we're not men. We're grown-up boys playing at life. We're adult-to-lessents that need to mature and put away childish things and take up the cross that we are so lovingly hid behind. So, when this happens, what a breath of fresh air it would be if the men in the church led in these things. If we showed ourselves to be those and really were ourselves those who thirst for a deep knowledge of God that's not just filled in the head, but fills the heart. If we led in this way, our churches would be vibrant and they would be compelling in the right sense. Not people coming to church based on personalities or trendiness or hip or that's, that's the cool church. I want to go there. But the reason that this church would grow is because the God of Scripture is there and He is the compelling personality that draws me in. Those churches are the ones that will last. The ones that, like He says in verse 1 and 2 of our chapter, have received the Gospel that stand in the Gospel that Lord willing, by His grace, will one day be saved by the Gospel. Mighty in the Scriptures, aglow with the great doctrines of grace, dominated by a sense of the greatness and the majesty and the holiness of God. This is what we must be in the church. Let's pray. Lord, what a joy to see Your Word, to hear this historical news that still has and will always have such a dominating impact on our souls. By Your Spirit, Lord, take this into our individual lives and the nooks and crannies of our existence and apply this truth deeply as we examine and discuss the rest of our day of what this looks like in all spheres of life. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.